morning, Sovereign Grace. I have the privilege of preaching to you again on the new birth. Um, this morning, we're going to be in the book of 1 John. So if you would, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Before I get there, I want to kind of recap what we talked about last week. And we spoke of the necessity of being born again. In Jesus, our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus, a man who believed in his name, a man who believed in Christ because of the miracles he was doing, our Lord said to him, that's not enough. God must regenerate your heart to bring you into the kingdom of God. Man must be brought into the kingdom of God by God. Man can't enter by his own works, by his own doing. And we spoke of how Jesus said that's an earthly thing. That's not a heavenly reality. That's plain and obvious to even unregenerate men. That the sinfulness of man cannot achieve the righteousness of God. The sinfulness of man cannot bring man into right standing with God and entry into his kingdom. And before we ended last week, the last thing I said is it's important to understand the necessity of the new birth because if we don't understand its necessity, if we haven't been born again, when we talk of heavenly things and the realities of the new birth, its effects, what it looks like in the Christian we're not going to understand them. If we have not been born of God, we might take these principles home and try to apply them. That if, if we act like John tells us to act, maybe we'll achieve the new birth. If we do what John tells us to do, maybe we'll get born again along the way. And that's not John's point in 1 John. In John chapter 3, Jesus' point was that God must do this work in you. And in 1 John today, when we read this and when we see what John has to say about the new birth, we're going to see that when we read these things, they point to who we are already or they point to who we are not today. And so John wrote this book, chapter 5, verse 13, so that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the three purposes of 1 John, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so, before we read the text, particularly about 1 John, I want to talk about John for a second. I think John is one of the most probably misunderstood apostles of the New Testament. He's the apostle of love, and he's rightly called that and that's what he became as Christ continued to sanctify him and guide him in the truth as he promised. But that's not always who John was. In Mark chapter 10, you can turn there if you'd like, we get a taste of who John is. In Mark 10, verse 35, Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And this is their request. Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. And he goes on and he asks if... James and John are able to drink the cup that the son had to drink. And they say, yes, we are. <laughs> John is not this gentle, dove-eyed individual in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 9, In verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. 
But Jesus, knowing they were thinking this in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. And John, verse 49, answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. Now, a good question is, why would John bring this up? Jesus brings a child, says, if you're like this child, if you're the least, then you'll be the greatest. It's because John was convicted of his sin from earlier that day. He said, Lord, there was somebody speaking. There was someone casting out demons in your name. But because he wasn't one of us, because he wasn't in our group, we told him to stop. That's who John is. John is a bulldozer of a man who longs for glory, but who will throughout his life be transformed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And those things, those realities about John don't go away. The Lord can use a strong-willed man. And the Lord can use a man who is designed the way John was designed. But the Lord has to humble a man like that. And in 1 John, as well as the Gospel of John, the two other epistles in Revelation, we see teaching that is very straightforward. Light and darkness. The truth is white and black. The truth is Christ or idols. You don't get a long-winded explanation of here's how this works, here's something you might believe, something you might not believe, and then along the way, ten pages later, you have an answer to your question. John is very straightforward. And the point of 1 John, like we read already, is to believers so that they would know that they have eternal life. And studying this week is Come to find out, throughout church history, 1 John has been very difficult to outline. Uh, no, no man has really admitted there's a clear outline to the epistle of 1 John, and I bring that up because I think it's important in regard to, that's John's point. In 1 John, all of these truths run together. John is talking about one thing. And the best summary of that, like we have come to, is 1 John 5.1. And it's explained by verses 2 and 3. And so if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the one who gives new birth, yours might say the Father, loves also the one who has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and do his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And I think these three verses are the heart of 1 John. If you read through the epistle, what John's getting at are four things. Believing that Jesus is the Christ. So right belief. Which is produced by being born of God. The right birth. Everyone who loves either the Father or the one who gives new birth, depending on your translation. Love for God. Right love loves also the one who has been born of him. These two go hand in hand, love God and love one another. And so, the order that we'll be going through this morning, the right birth, right belief, and right love. And so first, I want to look at the right birth. We talked about the necessity of being born again last week how that's required 
to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God. And in 1 John, John explains this new birth. But the way that he does it, because as Jesus said last week, the spirit, the way he works is a mystery. The way he does it is he explains the effects of the new birth. And in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, he gets at what the new birth is, what it produces, and how it relates to loving God. And, and just a, I'm not sure if I said this already, I mentioned last week this is somewhat an overview or a fly-through of 1 John. So 5, 1 through 3 is going to be our anchor. We're going to stay anchored to that text. That'll be our outline, but we'll be jumping all over 1 John. So if you're taking notes, I'm very sorry. <laughs> But in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, we're getting at what is the new birth, what are its effects, and how does it relate to loving God. So chapter 3, verse 4, he starts by saying, Everyone who does sin, everyone who practices sin, also does or practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. If you remember the text we read this morning, that's from Jeremiah 31. I will write my law on their hearts. John is explaining what the new covenant looks like, what the new birth looks like. And when he says sin is lawlessness, he's saying sin is against that law that is written on the heart in the new covenant. The two go hand in hand. They are the same thing. Verse 5, And you know that he was manifested in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That is to say that the work of Christ, what he has done, what he came to do, and what he continues to do, is completely against and opposed to lawlessness. What Christ came to do is to take away sin, to do away with sin, not only do away with sin, but in Christ there is no sin. And up to this point in 1 John, he's been expressing that we are united with Christ. That we who believe are one with him. And if we are in Christ, verse 6, no one who abides in him sins or makes a practice of sinning. No one who sins or makes a practice of sin has seen him or come to know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does sin or practices sin is of the devil, because the devil sins from the beginning. The Son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so far, John has explained that the work of Christ is completely opposed to the work of the adversary. That if you are in Christ, you are under his righteousness. That if you are in Christ, you have his righteousness. And that if you are not in Christ, like the devil, you go on sinning, verse 8, sins from the beginning. You are in a continual pattern of sin. So those are some of the effects. And verse 9 explains what the new birth is. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. The Greek word for seed, literally sperma. That is what comes from man. When we read that in the text or in scripture, scripture teaches that from one man comes his seed. And like that man that the seed came from, the seed will be like him. That what comes from a man is going to be a representation of that man. That when Adam had children, his seed or his children were like him. That his seed and his children sinned. And so John is not being crass. 
John is not being literalistic about the new birth. This is still spiritual, what the Spirit of God does. But what John is saying is your new birth, what God has done in you, comes from God himself. That what God has done in you is going to resemble the God that it came from. Your new birth, your new creation in Christ, who you are and your identity, will not sin, will not go on making a practice of sin, because your new nature that has been given to you comes directly from the Lord himself. And that if that is true, then like the seed of man, the seed of God is going to resemble God. In verse 9, he goes on, and he cannot sin or is not able to sin. That word cannot or is not able is dunamai. In the New Testament, that's having the power to do something. Because if the seed of God abides in man producing the new birth, there is no power in that man to go on sinning. That is to say, if you have been convicted of your sin, and you see your sin, you will not flagrantly continue disobedience against God because your new nature loves God. It does not love unrighteousness. Your new nature doesn't long to do what your flesh wants to do. It's not offended by the things of God. It doesn't hate God's word or God's people. Your new nature loves those things. Before you were born again, you hated those things. Before you were born again, you didn't long to be with God's people. You didn't long to be in his word or to be obedient to his word. But when you were born again, when God's seed took residence in you, when your heart of stone was taken out and your heart of flesh was given to you, on that heart was written a law, was written godliness and Christ-likeness. And that is the longing of your heart, is to be like Christ. And I want to make something really clear. Because the language of this section can be very confusing. Some have taken it very far and said that at some point in a Christian's life, he should be sinlessly perfect. At some point in a Christian's life, we don't sin anymore. And depending on your translation, it may seem that way when you read it. It says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. And so if we, if we want to take that seriously, we have to ask, is that what John is saying? And if you would flip over to chapter 1, verse 8. If we, that is the church, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. John's not saying in 1 John chapter 3 that believers don't ever sin. In fact, anyone who would say that does not have the truth of God in him, as he said in chapter 1 and 2. The point here, as we discussed, we don't have the power to go on sinning. If you've been born of God, your life resembles him. You will fail You'll need to confess your sin, but you will continue to walk in sanctification and be convicted of that sin. And that's far different than anything you had experienced before. Because before, 
the commandments of God were offensive to you. Before, whenever you heard the requirement of God, you gravitated away from it. In fact, the only barrier in your life to doing what you wanted to do was a Christian friend or somebody else you were around. Anything that got in the way of your flesh, anything that gets in the way of what you want, was something to be avoided. But now, as you've been born of God, born again, you love the things of God. You adore Scripture. You adore the people of God. You want to be with them. You want their good before you want your good. You want to love them as Christ has loved you. And from this section, you want to keep the commandments of God. They've been written on your heart. That's a wonderful work of God. That your dead heart would be awakened to righteousness. That this kind of heart surgery that took place in you was not just a renovation of an already dead heart. That it didn't make it smell better. But that God totally removed that heart and gave you one like that of His Son. So that you would go on to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And so that is John's exposition of the right birth. If you would turn over to 1 John 5, verse 1. And in the beginning of the verse, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's one of those sweeping statements that John makes that we have to understand in context. Because if you remember Nicodemus last week, he was believing in the name of Jesus Christ. He believed he was a teacher from God. And so what John is saying, particularly in 5.1, says, believes that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one the Old Testament looked forward to, and at this point in history was the one that came, the one who came and established the kingdom of God in the hearts of his people. And so I've, it, I've titled this part, Right Belief, because there are particular ways that John is explaining what it means for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ in 1 John. And we're going to fly through this, so go to chapter 1. In verses 1 through 3, we kind of get a glimpse of what John's dealing with in his audience. It says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Part of believing that Jesus is the Christ is that Jesus came as a man. That Jesus was God incarnate. That he was not just deity, but he was man. Truly God and truly man. Because the audience John was writing to were surrounded by teachers who wanted to say that the Spirit spiritual things are good, and that the flesh and physical things are bad or sinful. And right out of the gate, John says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was both spirit and man, fully God and fully man. In chapter 2, verse 1, he's the advocate with the Father. He's the righteous one. 
He's the righteous one who has the authority to forgive sins. Not only that, but he's the propitiation for those sins. That he himself died for those sins and lived so that you would be counted righteous. In chapter 2, verse 22, John asks the question, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So, two things here. Jesus is the Messiah. If you deny that, John calls you a liar. That is, God says you're a liar. Two, if you deny that, you not only deny Jesus Christ, but you deny the Father and the Son. If you read John's Gospel, one of the major themes is that the Son came to do all that the Father commanded Him. That the Son was the representation of God to His people. He says, no one has seen God at any time. And he tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is to say that if you deny the Son, if you deny Jesus Christ, you not only lose Christ, but you lose the Father. And like 1 through 3 said, you have no fellowship with the Father and the Son. You have no fellowship with God. In chapter 3, verse 23, it says, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's another way of saying, believing in the person of Jesus Christ. You believe in all that He did. You don't desire to take things out of His life, or to take things out of the Gospels or to rearrange the Gospels and make them fit your agenda. But you believe in what God has declared about His Son. Chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Again, it's a matter of His incarnation. You believe that He was man. Chapter 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That is to say, Jesus Christ was not only man, but was deity. Jesus Christ was not just a man, but was truly God. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It's the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. This audience John was writing to, these Gnostics, believed that somehow the Spirit of Christ descended on him at his baptism... And before he died, that spirit left him. And so you have the man who was born, who was not deity. And you have the man who died, who was not deity. And so they got away with this, this righteous life that could be accomplished by God, but certainly not birth. Certainly not fulfilling righteousness or being baptized by a man. And certainly not dying on a cross for the sins of his people. And what John's saying in 6 through 8 is that the water, his baptism, fulfilling righteousness, being baptized by John the Baptist, the blood, the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ, the atoning propitiation of Christ, and the Spirit of God that was present on him in not only those two works, but all of his works. Those three are in agreement. In every work Christ did, God stamped his approval on it. And lastly, 520. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God 
and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. That is to say that Jesus Christ is the only God. That there are no other gods but Jesus Christ. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God, the Trinity, Yahweh, is the only God of the Bible. And that any other God or any other form of God being taught by Gnostics or whoever else is a false God. These last verses in particular hearken back to Deuteronomy. Whenever he tell, Moses tells the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is only one God. Yahweh is one in himself. And he tells them to flee from idols, to not go into the land and pervert their worship with idols. And similarly here, as the law is written on the hearts of New Covenant believers, John is saying, Jesus Christ is the one God. That there is only one God. Jesus Christ and all other gods are idols. And so John throughout this epistle is saying that you not only have the right birth, you're not only born of God, but you believe in the Word of God, that you have the right belief about who God is and who His Christ is, who Jesus is. Like we mentioned, you don't try to take away from who He is. You don't manipulate the truth of the Bible or see yourself on the same level as Christ. Christ is the only begotten of the Father completely unique in himself. And so, John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And just as an aside, belief in Christ is mentioned first in 5.1. And then it says, has been born of God. But if you would go to chapter 2, verse 29... If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. There's that construction, that way of saying things in the sentence. If you know that, you have been born of him. And then chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves, active, present tense, has been born of God and knows God, past tense. This new birth does not come after believing in Jesus Christ. You are enabled to believe rightly in Jesus Christ by the new birth. And lastly, John says, And everyone who loves the Father, or the one who gives new birth, loves also the one who has been born of him. And I think it's important to not separate, first of all, any of these, but especially these two. He explains that in verses 2 and 3. In verse 1, he says, Everyone who loves the Father, or loves the one who gives new birth, loves also the one who has been born of Him. That's saying one thing. In verse 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do His commandments. Verse 3 says, For this is the love of God. In other words, this is how you know you love God. That we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Do you see how all of these come together? That if you've been born of God, you believe rightly in God, and you love God and you love His children. And all of this is centered around what God does in the new birth. And so first, when we talk about the right love, John says that we love the one who gives new birth. And kind of going back to chapter 3, we saw that in verses 4 through 10. 
It says, if we love God, we keep his commandments in 5.3. And in 3, 4 through 10, we see commandment-keeping believers who have been born of God. If you've been born of God, you will spiritually, by the Spirit of God, long for the things of God. That's why it says the commandments aren't burdensome. Sometimes you'll hear preachers bashing you with the commandments, saying you need to do the things God requires you to do. That's true. But for any real believer, those commandments aren't burdensome. It doesn't feel like the weight of the world on your shoulders to follow Christ. It's something you love to do, regardless of what you may lose. You may wish that things weren't a certain way at times. Your circumstances may discourage you. You may not be living the life you thought you would live 10 years ago. But none of those things are comparable to what God has done in you in producing you to love Him, which is loving obedience to Him. Because if you love Him, you want to be like Him. In order to be like Him, you keep His commandments. You keep the law of Christ. You long to be like Christ. And you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 2, that's the whole point of this. John says, Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He's manifested, that is when He comes again, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. And three, two, we're the children of God. We know that when he's manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This isn't a random text in John. This is the point. That this whole track of salvation that the Lord has put us on, the whole purpose is to make us like Christ, to make us like God. That's not to say we will be even comparable to the indescribable glory of the Father. He who dwells in inapproachable light. We're not little gods running around. But we are made by God like our brother Jesus Christ. And it's important to say that this is not a matter of salvation. This is not a matter of justification. You don't have to do righteousness in order to be saved. You don't have to do works in order to obtain salvation. You hear some folks all the time, if you're on the internet, if, if you're around town, if you've been in a traditional Baptist church, you've heard, well, if I believe that I have to do well, if I believe that Jesus has to be the Lord of my life, then somehow or another, I'm making the gospel about what I do. And it's not about that. It's not about what you do in order to be saved. Because the matter of sanctification, what you do, how you live your life, your obedience to Jesus Christ, is all about what God has done before your justification, before you believed in Christ. God regenerated your heart not only to believe the gospel that was being preached to you, but so that from that moment on you would love being like Christ. You would long to be like Him. And regeneration then doesn't say you have to obtain your salvation by doing works. You're only saved if you do well. The point of regeneration is that if God has saved you, He will keep you in step with His Son by the Spirit's power in you. Thus, it is offensive to God, to the Spirit of God, to say that Christians can go off and never obey Christ, that they can look back 15 years ago and say that, well, I believed then. I wanted to read my Bible then. I wanted to go to church then. But now I have no desire and I haven't for God knows how long. Because if you've been born of God, you can look at your heart today 
and see that the same work he started in you prior to today is continuing. That you're growing in Christ. And that's beautiful. That's a wonderful reality that shouldn't be thrown away for the sake of including more people in the church. You must believe in the gospel. But before you can believe, you are born of God. And so, we see that loving God in chapter 3 is keeping His commandments because if we've been born of Him, we bear the family resemblance. Chapter 5, verse 1 says that if we love the one who gives new birth, we love the one who's been born of him. It makes sense. If you love your dad, you love your siblings. If you love the father, you love all of his children because the father loves all of his children. That's the point in chapter 4, that God is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And if we're to be like Him and to be like Christ, we love one another. And John's whole exposition of this is in chapter 3. That's why I keep going back to that. In chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, he explains what it means to love your brother. Verse 10 He has this double reality. He says, By this the children of God and the children of of the devil are manifested. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God. That is, if you don't keep the commandments, you don't love God. If you're unable to keep the commandments, you don't love God. You're not of God. And then he adds, as well as the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Jealousy. Do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love, that is, does not love, the brothers, abides in death, is still dead in their sin. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Do you see that work done in your heart? Like we mentioned, this isn't something you take home and try to do better. We do grow in our sanctification. We are challenged by these realities. But in your heart, do you love the brothers? Do you love the church of Jesus Christ today, right now? Is the testimony of your life that I love the church? That I love the children of God? That I seek their good? That I want their good? Is that your desire, as much as it is your desire, to love God and keep His commandments? In verse 18, he says, let us not love with word or with tongue. Over and over again in 1 John, he says, if we say, if we say, if we say, and it's always negative. He says, if we profess this about ourselves, if we say this is true about us, but we don't do it, it's not true, it's false. And he always compares that if we say to an active action. And I want to find an example. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, so if we profess this but our lives are a testimony 
to something else. We lie and do not do the truth. And then this is the comparison to if we say, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Are you walking in love of the brothers? Is God, just as much as he saved you, just as much as he produced this new creation in you, is he spurring you on to love your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Because in 5, 1 through 3, how do we know that we love the children of God? When we love God and do His commandments. How do we know we love God? That we keep His commandments and they aren't burdensome. This describes us or it doesn't. This describes our hearts in the new covenant. Our hearts in Christ or it doesn't. Like we mentioned, we will fail. We will sin. We'll need to confess our sin. But we will never fail to go from glory to glory. And it's not because we're so great. It's because the power of the Spirit of God in you is greater than he who is in the world. Don't disbelieve the Spirit of God. When you look at your life and your flesh, don't think, how could I ever be obedient to Christ? It's not a matter of you. Just as much as your new birth wasn't yours, your obedience to Christ isn't credited to you. We strive after obedience to Christ. We long for those things. We grow in them. That's the desire of our heart. But be assured that the Spirit of God does not fail His work. And that because of that, if our heart's desire is in loving God and loving one another, rest assured that you have eternal life. In chapter 3, to close out this section, verse 19 through 22 are extremely important. Because you have two parties you have the Christians who are discouraged and the Christians who are growing in their maturity. Verse 19 says, By this, that is by loving God, keeping His commandments that we saw throughout chapter 3, by this we will know that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. That is to say that if you long to love God and love His people, but you see your failure and you see your sin and it becomes this cloud over you, you can't see the glory of the new birth. John's saying that if your heart, the desires of your heart are explained in chapter 3, 4 through 10, loving God, 11 through 18, loving one another, then God is greater than your heart. If you feel the weight of your guilt, your need to confess, your need to make things right with the church, while still seeing these realities in your heart, then you can be assured that God's word speaks much louder than your guilt. That your failures will not overcome the work God has already done in you. Because if these desires are yours, you can assure your heart before God, not based on your guilt, but based on the truthfulness of God's word, that you are one of his children. In verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if we have been faithful, if we are growing in our sanctification, if we're seeing the fruit of that, we have confidence before God. 
Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. When you were obedient to your father and you went up to him and asked something of him, you had no expectation of a beating for asking. When you go up to your father in right relationship with him, you have confidence before him. Much more than that, or much different than that. If you are walking in obedience to God because of the work of the Spirit of God in you, and you see the fruit of that in your life, not only in desire, but also in effect, not only in what you want, but also in the way you live your life. If you see those realities, you have confidence before God. And in chapter 5, he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so if we go to God, knowing his will because we're informed by the word of God, and we ask of him, we receive what we ask. How wonderful a fellowship Christians have with the Father. One theme of the book, that you would have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That God in heaven, this isn't an idea, this is reality for the Christian. That God in heaven has fellowship with you, that He's taken up residence in you, that He's producing spiritual fruit in your life that you see the effects of the Spirit of God in you. And not only that, but you are assured before God in heaven that you are saved. How wonderful is that? You don't have to worry. You don't have to look to God and wonder, am I one of your children? Because through His Word, He's assured His children. That if you've been born of God, if you're in sin, confess your sin. Because the propitiation of your sin is far greater than any sin your life could amount. That he who is in heaven has the authority to forgive sins. But not only that, brothers and sisters. But he who is in heaven and he who is in you, as much as he has authority to forgive sins, has the power to produce godliness in your life. And so for the Christian, in sin, in obedience, in failure, and success by the Spirit of God, we have assurance in our hearts before Him. But if this does not describe your heart, if this doesn't describe who you are, if you are not new in Christ, if loving God by keeping His commandments and loving your brothers as Christ loved you, if that is not your heart, you must be born again. And I think it's important to say the means by which God gives the new birth is through the gospel. That when God's children in his time hear the gospel preached, in that moment... You're born again, believe the gospel, justified in Christ, and begin this track of sanctification until your glorification. Peter says we've been born again not of imperishable seed, or not of perishable seed, but imperishable. And that is the word which you heard from us, the gospel. So if you would turn to John 3. These are likely the heavenly things that John wanted to explain to his readers, but Jesus in his omniscience did not share with Nicodemus because he was not born of God at this point. In John 3, 
start in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. During a time when Israel was disobedient and God sent snakes to plague them. Whenever Israel had worshipped idols, Moses was told to make a bronze serpent and to stand and hold it up for the people, and anyone who looked at the serpent would be protected from the snakes. Anyone who looked at what was lifted up would be saved. Verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The moment of glory in the Gospel of John is when Jesus Christ is lifted up. That he has died for the sins of his people. Caiaphas prophesied and he said, you don't have to turn here in chapter 11, but he was rebuking his colleagues. He said, you know nothing. It is better that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And John says, he didn't say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It sounds very familiar because in 1 John he says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, what nation you come from, doesn't matter if there are snakes all around you, if your life is falling apart, or if it looks great. Look up to the Son of Man, lift it up on the cross, and see that your sin is being paid for. That it's not a matter of this idea of sin. It's not something you do sometimes. It's who you are. Your dead heart. Your nature. Your sin. And it's for that sin. For the sins of His people. That on the cross, Christ propitiated the wrath of God. That that work was enough that the wrath of God fell on him rather than God's children. He died in your place. And he was raised from the dead. He defeated death. God, God showed, as Paul says in Romans 1, that he was the Son of God by raising him from the dead. And he ascended into heaven, where he now prays for his own, and he intercedes for them before the Father, and is our advocate, forgives our sins, pointing back to the work that he has done on the cross. So if these things have not described you, believe on him. Trust in Christ. See His righteous life and His righteous death. And if you would believe in Him, that would be credited to your account. And if God has enabled you to do that, rejoice. Because it's only the beginning. And so... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. And in verses 4 and 5, everything that's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the overcoming or the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In all things, brothers and sisters, we overcome 
not by our own works, but because of the mighty, powerful work of the Spirit of God in us.